the, yeah, the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. Praise the Lord, I'm a cracked clay vessel redeemed by God's grace, and uh, grateful to be here with you. I understand the challenges and opportunities that go with being between pastors. It's not a bum deal. It's God's providence. We embrace his providence and uh, try to be faithful in the midst of that and try to have a God focus and be encouraged in his, in his goodness. I can tell you from both experience and the Bible that there are times that the script being written isn't one we would care for. But you know what? It's, uh, we have a great God who we can trust, who's doing good things for his glory, and uh, we want to be faithful along the way. So I pray for you and for your leaders as you not just look for a new pastor, which is a, a good thing to look forward to, but don't think just about them. Be faithful now. Be a bright light now. Witness to the lost people around you now. Be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters now. Be God-focused now. So may God be your strength as you do that. We look forward to seeing how God works in his will to help you continue to be a bright light in a dark world. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 4 this morning, so turn there. Thank you for the chance to be in your midst. I look forward to being here at least a couple of times, and uh, we'll just trust God to hear how God accomplishes his will here. I do have a, a wife and, yes, eight children. Um, some are shocked by that, and they're all ours. 30 down to 13, six boys, two girls, just a blessing to us. We're just thrilled. And um, one wife, yes, that's true too. And we just wanted a large family, and uh, God was good to us. So we're just uh, grateful that uh, God can work in and through cracked clay vessels and uh, the chance to be here with you. Before I look at Deuteronomy 4 and think about our incomparable God, let's gather hearts together in a word of prayer. We do thank you, Lord, that you are indeed the absolutely un incomparable, unparalleled God of the universe. You are great and marvelous, majestic and holy. And yet the mystifying thing is, is that as the great God of the universe, you set your love on us. And you sent your son to live a absolutely unparalleled sinless life and then dying a horrific and agonizing death to provide us with the redemption we so desperately need and have no hope for in ourselves. And we thank you that Jesus broke the bars of death and went to your right hand and accomplished that redemption for us. And for those here who enjoy that salvation, their lives have been transformed by the gospel, I pray that it would be our encouragement each day motivating us to live in a way that shows the world your greatness, your love, your mercy, to see them drawn to the gospel. I do pray that you would help us in your word today to be encouraged by your greatness and all that you do. I pray that we would be motivated to live loyal lives because of who you are and all that you do. You know the hearts of each one that's here. You know those who might be discouraged or weak, those who might be wrestling with and holding on to sin, those who 
might be plagued by physical issues. Those who are rejoicing in you, I pray your spirit would take your word and encourage each of our hearts. I pray that we would be more able to live for your glory because of your word. I do ask you to hide your servant behind the cross and be glorified in all that's said. Thank you for clearly communicating your word to us. I pray that we be students of it and be able to live it out to those in our lives and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. What are those things that impress us most? You know, what are those things that grab our attention? You know, for some of you, maybe sports, you know, a long drive down the fairway. It could be maybe, you know, Super Bowl, some play last week. Some of you who are 49ers fans are still aching over that last would-be touchdown pass that didn't happen and are still angry with the refs for not calling the interference. So, you know, it could be, uh, it could be uh, the outdoors, a beautiful scenery that just is uh, awe-inspiring, maybe some musical rendition. The, the point is there are various things in life that kind of catch our attention, that are meaningful to us. But I wonder, in all those areas, whatever it is that catches your attention, how long-lasting is the impact of that sports event, that beautiful vista, that musical number, that rendition? You know, for the most part, those things that we find really interesting, those things that are attracting to us, those things that are interesting, they, they, uh, the, the impact fades as time goes by. And I wonder, as I think about chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, what is it, or better, who is it that should make an eternal impact on your and my life? What is it, or who is it, that should grab our attention and hold it with life-transforming effect? You see, I'm asking maybe a question this way. What is it or who is it that should drive my thinking about career, ambition, my ultimate goals? Where should those definitions come from? What is it or who is it that should serve as the basis for and the satisfaction of my deepest hungers and thirsts? I can tell you the world defines it in absolutely horrific ways. In Deuteronomy 4, among other passages, it would tell us through Moses that our great and powerful God, the God who is without comparison, the God who is absolutely incomparable, should provide the ultimate direction and shape for our lives. A life that's transformed by God can carry out long-term and effective God-honoring living and God-pleasing ministry. You see, a life that is transformed by a growing understanding of who God is is a life that can impact a world by living for God's glory. Now, you might think sometimes, you know, we're a small body. We can only do so much. Let me encourage you that a life lived for God's glory has an impact that has eternal potential consequences. It's not an insignificant thing. And so as you think about Deuteronomy 4, the key idea is that as we, as we consider our God's greatness, who our God is and what he does, his character and his activity should transform us into followers who effectively demonstrate God's character to the world around us. 
They should result in a, uh, in a life that's transformed by his name. And again, that kind of life can manifest Christ's character, can be Christ-like in a consistent way. By growing an understanding of God's greatness and mercy and grace, we can live in light of that God. We can be better Christians, better husbands and wives, better sons and daughters, more, more God-pleasing employees, employers, and the list could go on and on. The point is, is as we have our lives transformed by giving attention to the greatness of God, we're more able to do what God has called us to do. Now, you and I can think about what God has given us to do as a list of requirements and be staggered by that list. Whoa, we're called to do all of that? I'm not really able to do it. Well, you're right. You aren't, and neither am I. But there's a God in heaven, the great God of the universe, who longs to enable us to do that. And part of the way he does that, in addition to the giving of his spirit, to enable us to live for his glory, is he wants us to have a God focus. And as our, our hearts are enraptured by his greatness and incomparability, we're motivated to live in a way that pleases his name toward those he's put into our lives. So we're going to see that in Deuteronomy 4. And uh, just to set the stage for the message in the book, think back with me to the history of Israel where God's people are a collection of racially related, ethnically related individuals in Egypt. They haven't welded into a nation yet. They're a people. And God raises up Moses through some unique circumstances who is called by God to lead his people out of the land of Egypt. And he goes to the Pharaoh and he says to the Pharaoh, let the people of Yahweh, the people of the Lord of Israel, go. And Pharaoh asks that fateful question, who's he? The Lord. I mean, I've heard of this God and that God, and, and they're part of our, our thought process. But who is Yahweh that should I be compelled to, to let all these slaves go? Well, the Lord proceeded to introduce himself to the Pharaoh, right? It's called Ten Plagues. He uh, introduced himself to the Pharaoh into Egypt by demonstrating himself as the all-powerful God of the universe and absolute control of every area of life. But in that introduction of himself to the Pharaoh, he was also introducing himself to the people of Israel. This is the God who brings to pass his promise. This is the God who can do all he says. This is the God who is not bound by normal limitations. No, this is the God who is, has no just little area of turf. This is the God who is absolutely supreme and absolutely unparalleled. And this is the God who deserves your obedience and your love and your trust. This is the God you need to make big to the world. And so he, the Pharaoh, with Egypt kind of smoking and rubble strewn, lets God's people go and they come to the Red Sea and cross it in glorious fashion. They, they cross it in a way that is absolutely astounding crunching the Egyptian army behind them. And then they march down the Sinai Peninsula where God provides for their food and drink in, in a miraculous way. And they come to a place called Mount Sinai where God is going to give them his instructions, his expectations, his law. And it's been about a year there. And as Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and the Lord writes in those stone tablets the Ten Commandments and the Lord gives Moses the rest of the law that Moses writes down, something important is happening. And we'll come back to this. The Lord is not just dumping on his people a disparate collection of kind of difficult rules to keep. 
He's trying to make their lives miserable. No, he's not giving them ways of going to heaven. No, he wants them to understand in a tangible way how they can live in a way that makes God big. How they can live in a way that shows the world what God is like. And so he gives them the law, and they spend the next several months kind of doing the things they need to do to get their nation's lives in order, building a tabernacle and making all the arrangements. And then they head off toward the promised land to go to Kadesh Barnea, the southern end of the land of promise, and send those 12 spies in. And 10 said, came back with a bad report. Two said, God can do this. And the 10 who had a bad report said, oh, we're grasshoppers in the sight of the Canaanites. They have walls that reach up to heaven. We can't do this. And two said, Joshua and Caleb, let's go for it. God will enable us. But the people listened to the 10, and they said, we can't do this. We're not going to go. In God, longer story here, and God severely judged them for the rebellion and banished them to wander the wilderness for almost 40 years. And at the end of that almost 40 years, God says, okay, it's time for you to head up to the promised land. Go up on the east side of the Jordan River, and I'm going to give you victory over this and that people. And when, when Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy, God's people are camped at the brink of the promised land. They're at the brink of enjoying the promise fulfilled. In the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, God said, I'll make you a nation, a people, done. I'll give you a land about to be done. And I'll make you a blessing to all the peoples of the world. It will happen progressively in the coming years. And so in this book of Deuteronomy, God is, through Moses, trying to address a new generation of, of Israelites who... Yes, the nation had been characterized by failure, but now they have a new vista, a new opportunity before them. And God wants his people to live in a way that makes him big in the world. And in Deuteronomy, he is doing more than just reminding them about what God expected, the requirements, the laws. That happens in Deuteronomy, yes. But he wants them to understand not just the what, we'll talk more about that later, but the how, how they can do that. And so he starts in Deuteronomy by reminding them that he had been faithful to them up to this point. In Deuteronomy 1 to 3, it's like a historical prologue where he goes from the, the time of their encampment and departure from Mount Sinai to the present encampment in the plains of Moab just across the Jordan River to the east. And he reminds them that, yes, he had judged them for their sin, but he was a God who had been absolutely faithful to them as a people, and that should motivate them to obey him. And then he goes on in chapter 4, the chapter before us, where he leaves kind of a presentation, a very relevant, powerful presentation of history, and he goes to a, a sermon where he's trying to help God's people understand the need for them to live in a way that demonstrates God's character to the watching world. And that's going to be by obeying his requirements from the inside out and worshiping him in a way that he's defined it. And so he wants to have his people live like his people. He moves here from relating Israel's itinerary in chapters 1 to 3 to exactly understanding more of what God expected of them, but beyond that, how. Not just what, but how. How could people, the people of God, have a life that demonstrated his character to the watching world? And the central idea is, as I've said already, they need to have a God-focused life. Now, I'm going to just explain that for a minute. We'll come back to that throughout the message and at the end. What does it mean to have a God-focused life? It's kind of like everybody should have that. I mean, you might think you have a God-focused life. I hope so. I would say to you that this is not something we do by nature. 
It is not something that's natural because there are so many things in life competing for our attention, competing for our interest. And quite often those things are where the focus of our attention is. I mean, I could spend some time with you and watch your life and give you an idea of what I'm seeing. It could be a career-focused life. It could be a girl or a guy-focused life. It could be a sport-focused life. And God is in the midst of that somewhere. What I'm suggesting to you is job one, the first task should be in our lives is help us to cultivate a theocentric God focus in our lives, that we would have him be at the center of our attention, that he would be the one that I'm trying to honor, that's motivating me to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave him so forth, that he would be the one as he is in my thoughts. I'm being motivated because of his greatness to live the life of loyalty by shepherding my kids and turning their hearts to him, to have a passion for the world around me that doesn't know him as Savior and Heavenly Father and to share the gospel with them. Those things should all be the result of this God focus. And all too often, friends, and I'm not thinking that you guys are a a bad church, I just know our hearts, that all too often we let all kinds of other things occupy primary place in our lives, and we're not really living a God-focused life. There are lots of things in life that are good, and I'm not saying toss all those out, but those things should never replace what's best. God needs to be at the center of our attention, and that's what I want to focus on this morning. So we're going to see how Moses develops this important truth of pointing to God's incomparability. And there are three points. You have them in the compressed form there in your bulletin. But uh, first of all, he, he tells God's people to observe God's commands. And he focuses on the extent of that obedience and what it will result in. He wants his people to obey the Lord's requirements, all that God says, because that's going to impact the world for, for his glory. Notice as far as the extent is concerned, it's all of God's law. Verse 2, you may not add anything to what I command you or take anything away from it so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God I'm giving you. The point is it's holistic, it's coherent, it's exhaustive. God is saying it isn't for us to pick and choose for Israel then. There's a whole other discussion here, and I don't make the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic law something binding for a New Testament believer. But the concept for Israel was, is they were to keep all the Mosaic law. It wasn't for them to pick and to choose what they obeyed and didn't. It was to be a total allegiance, a total loyalty, to obey all that God said, to be faithful to him. And notice he he warns them in verses 3 and 4 about treachery that happened at Baal Peor. At Baal Peor, that's when the Moabite women came in among Israel, and the Moabite men were attracted to them and and married them, and were beginning to practice the, the idolatry of the Moabites. And there was a severe judgment God brought against his people because of the treachery that they manifested. You see, I think when he talked about God's requirements of his people, what God expected of them, he wanted them to understand that treachery was serious, had long-term consequences. He wanted them to be faithful. Now think about that with me. Why is it that God chose Israel, well, ultimately, to bring himself glory in the world? But he chose Israel because it was going to be through Israel he was going to accomplish great things of redemptive significance. I mean, who writes most of the the Bible? Israelites, Israeli men. Who is it that, where is it that the Messiah comes from? From Israel. I think who is the nation that's going to be restored to the land and is going to live in a way with the Lord ruling again in Jerusalem? It's going to be Israel. So he has lots of things in mind for them. And why does he give this nation his law? Not to give them a way of salvation, because no one's ever saved through keeping the law. Not to make their lives miserable, 
by giving them all these laws that we don't understand very well. Not to give them a way of racking the brownie points in heaven. He gave them his law so they could tangibly understand how to live in a way that made him big in the world. He wanted them to be faithful as a nation. He wanted them from the inside out to be able to obey him. He wanted them to be a holy nation. And we'll see this more in a moment, but remember when he says, be holy as I am holy, it's not for their benefit, it's for his glory. He wants them to live in a way that shows the world what he's like. And, and I want you to understand here, we'll, we'll come back to this, that in giving them his law, sometimes when we think about the Mosaic law, we're missing something really important. And, and quite often I'd prefer to call the Mosaic covenant he established with them. Why is that? Because the covenant carries with it the idea of a relationship. And when you get married, it's like, oh, some people liken it to a covenant relationship in that there's a, there's a relationship there. There's a commitment on both sides that involves a relationship. When the Lord gives his law to his people, he is kind of making it a more, more concrete, this relationship he had initiated with the descendants of Abraham. And he has expectations. I mean, he is their suzerain, their, their Lord. He is the controller, the sovereign. And they're his vassals, his servants. And it's in the context of that, that relationship they're to live their lives. Why am I saying that? Because sometimes in the Old Testament in particular, but even sometimes in our lives today, we view disobedience, we view sin as something on the naughty list. Oh, I just broke rule number 32. I just broke rule number 17. Okay, so I did something wrong. I, I, I checked something off on the bad list, and that's what sin is. No, no. Always, sin is a form of relational treachery. It's a, it's a kind of a violation of a, of a relationship, whether it's something smaller or bigger, humanly speaking. You see, any sin has to be understood against the context of a relationship. When I raising like our kids, as they were growing up, we wanted them to understand that there was a relationship behind um, their responsibilities. So when they, let's say, one, one child struck another child, and we had to punish them for that, it wasn't just, Grisantes, don't do that, and you're in big trouble because of this, so here, here goes. There, there was punishment, but we wanted them to understand that what they had done was they had a responsibility, because they professed Christ, they had a responsibility before God to demonstrate his character to that brother or that sister. And God expected this of them, and we did too. And so is, is, is this God-given responsibility to love their brother or their sister and to treat them in a way that honored his name, what they had just done had violated that relationship. It wasn't just a, a sin that, on a list of things that they hadn't done. This is number 27 of the Grisanti no-no list. No, no, it was what it was. Is your task is to show the world what God is like, including, including your brother who you just hit. What kind of an image of God did you just give him? Not a very good one. You blew it. But it's a relational background. So what I want to see is, as, as Moses is telling God's people to obey all that God requires, it is obey all that God requires that is part of a relationship. It isn't just a set of rules. It isn't just a set of tasks. It is part of a relationship that, to which we need to be faithful. And sin is a violation of a treachery against 
that relationship. Okay, so that's, that's the extent. Obey God's requirements, the extent, all of it, from the inside out as part of a relationship to the result. In verses 5 to 8, he says, Look, I've taught you statutes and ordinances that the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to possess. And then in verse 6, if you carefully follow them, when they hear the nations around them, all the peoples, when they hear about all these statutes, they will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. This is going to be unparalleled living, something they hadn't seen before. Verse 7, Moses continues, for what great nation is it that has a God near to the Lord our God is to us? Whenever called to him. And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you today? He wants them to realize that God has called them to live in a set-apart way before the nations of the world. The nearness of God to them, the uniqueness of his requirements of them, was to help them live in an unparalleled way, in a countercultural way, in a way that showed God's character to the watching world with vividness and clarity. And, and does this ultimately exalt Israel or God? Now, at first you might think people are saying, whoa, look at Israel. Look at how distinct they are. But that's not the ultimate point, is it? Think about Matthew 5, 16 for an example. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and pat you on the back. No, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What God is calling his people to and obeying his word, his word, his requirements, his expectations, is they would live in a way that made God big in the world. They would point others to his greatness. So first of all, he asks God's people to obey his requirements, and it has involves all of God's expectations, and the result is an impact on the nations around them. In the middle section, the largest section, there's this attention to the dangers and consequences of different forms of idolatry. Now, I want you to hang with me here, because this is not as relevant to us as we normally think about life, but there's an important truth here. First of all, we have a reminder of God's revelation at Mount Sinai in verses 9 to 14, and he, he says here at the beginning to show how important this is, only be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves. Give careful attention to this. And don't forget the things that you have seen, and so they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. So he wants them to understand these are far-reaching things. And by the way, whenever in any biblical book, but in Deuteronomy in particular, when he says don't forget, the reason is if you do forget, it shows up in life, in treachery, in sin, in rebellion. If you're living as if God hasn't asked you these things, or you live as if God doesn't exist, this is what it looks like, and it's ugly. Don't forget lest you rebel. And then he says that what I want you to do is remember that day when I revealed myself at Horeb, which is an alternative name for Sinai. It's, it's the same place. And he, and he describes verses 15 to 18, or no, excuse me, in verses the 10 to 12, what happened there. You can look at Exodus 19 sometime to read a, a fuller presentation of it, but there God's people are gathered around the base of Mount Sinai, and up there toward the top, Moses is receiving the law from the Lord in the in the the dark clouds are boiling and lightning is flashing and thunder is rolling and the ground is shaking. I and mean, it was an amazingly impressive presentation of power as God is giving his expectations to his people through Moses. 
He wants them to understand, though, that when that happened, how did God reveal himself? Not in tangible form. In a very impressive, powerful way, but not in tangible form. And what is God revealing by doing that? What is he adding to? Notice he says here in verse 20, um, excuse me, 13 and 14, he declared his covenant to you. And I want you to remember the word covenant has the idea of a relationship. He is deepening and broadening this relationship he wants to enjoy with you as a nation. It isn't just rules, it's a relationship. Okay, then we go on to this intangible nature of Israel's God in verses 15 to 24. The Lord manifested himself to Israel on that day without tangible form, dark clouds, flashing lightning, rolling thunder, ground shaking, an impressive demonstration of power without corporeal, without bodily form. And he wants his people to avoid creating any image to objectify him before them as a people. By the way, that's what the second commandment is all about. First commandment, you'll have no other God but me for you. No idols, no idol, idol worship, no images. Second commandment is you will not make an image to objectify me to your people. Let me define my image. Let me define who I am. Because God knew that any attempt to make an image of the great and powerful God of the universe would corrupt his being, would corrupt his presence, would corrupt their understanding of him. It would lead to idolatry. And so in this next passage, he's telling them again, verse 15, be extremely careful. And he goes on and he says, don't make any image of me. Because it's going to corrupt how you view me. And verse 20, he, he tells us why he can ask them for this. But, but the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. You see, he's reminding them that he has the wherewithal to ask them for their loyalty. He brought them out of Egypt's iron furnace to form them as a people for his own glory. You know, it's interesting to make sure we understand that God never comes to his people as a stranger making absolutely unreasonable demands. Look at the Ten Commandments, and before the first commandment, it says he is the God who redeemed them and created them and brought them out of the land of Egypt. As the God who, in unparalleled fashion, demonstrated his absolute supremacy over all the elements of the world, and he brought his people out of the clutches of the powerful Egyptian empire and brought them across the Red Sea, he has demonstrated that he is worthy of their obedience and their allegiance. This relationship that he entered into with them and the way he's conducted himself with regard to that relationship gives him the ability to demand their obedience. And if they don't, they need to keep in mind verses 23 and 24, the motivation, verse 24 in particular, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, when you and I think about jealousy, quite often we think of it negatively because in, in human existence, Jealousy often is a self-focused thing. That's my toy. He took my toy. I'm not happy about it. I'm jealous for my toy. It's a turf issue. They're, they're, they're walking into my turf. They're doing my stuff. And I'm jealous. But that's not what God is talking about here. The jealousy that God manifests perfectly always, that has a legitimate role in, in human lives at times, 
is in the context of a relationship where there's the correct expectation of faithfulness. My wife has a legitimate jealousy that I am focused on her and her alone. Same for me with regard to her. With God, because he's established his relationship with his people and he's invested in that relationship in absolutely unparalleled ways, he is a God, as a jealous God, who will act if there's treachery. And God's people need to, need to know that that God deserves their absolute faithful obedience. Worship him in a way that he defines himself. And by the way, again, this is why idolatry is so bad for Israel. It's, it's not just the violation of a rule like the first commandment, which is bad. But it's relational treachery again. I mean, think about, for those of you who are married, think about how, you know, copacetic or comfortable your wife would be when you say, you came home and said, hey, I decided to take a mistress. <laughs> yeah, I can just see some things happen. Black eyes, you know, bodies hurled through windows, you know, clothes tossed out in the road, whatever. I mean, it wouldn't be a very popular thing. It wouldn't be a good thing. Idolatry is like that. It's treachery in the context of a relationship, and that's what God is trying to help people understand. When we, when we allow someone else or something else to have priority in our life over God, that's idolatry. And for Israel, it, it could have been in the heart alone or actually bowing down to idols. And, and, and by the way, just for a minute, think with me how, how, how goofy, how stupid, how foolish that is when we do that. You know your life. You know where you're at in your heart. You know where God fits in the, the priorities of your life. And you know those things that maybe are higher on the list for you. Those things that get in the way of or prevent you from really pursuing the Lord and being loyal to him. How valuable are those things? I mean, when you, when you think about the things we pursue in life, that get in the way of our absolute pursuit of God as the great God of the universe, we, we compare them, and here we take something or someone eternal in duration— and we replace him with something fleeting in duration. We take someone who is infinite in value, and we replace him with something without ultimate value, dust and ashes. We take someone who is absolutely majestic and beautiful in every way, and push him out for the sake of something that's really ugly and disgusting in comparison. And it makes no sense. And God is saying to his people through Moses, Worship me as I've defined myself. I deserve that kind of obedience because of the kind of a God he is. And let me define my image, he says. And then he, he, he kind of drops the hammer in verses 25 to 31 where he tells them this is going to be trouble if you don't listen. He says, if, in verse 25, if you act corruptly, if you don't do what I've demanded of you, if you commit treachery, Verses 26 to 28 give the then, the consequences. You'll perish from the land. You'll not live long. You'll be scattered around the nations. You'll be small in number. And you'll have the chance to worship those dead idols you want to worship. So if in future generations Israel violates this divine expectation of faithful worship, well, the curses of the covenant that Deuteronomy 28 talks about will, will become operative. It just is, again, mind-boggling to me when you think about what Israel did, and this eventually happened to the nation. In the Abrahamic covenant, 
when God entered into this relationship with the descendants of Abraham, he offered them what? A land. And he's bringing this to pass here in Deuteronomy Joshua. Offer them a land. He says the consequences are you're going to be evicted from the land if you don't obey. He offered to make them a nation, a great people. And then the consequences of their covenant treachery would be to be, have a drastically reduced population, small in number, scattered among the nations. He offers them at various points, especially in Deuteronomy, long life and abundance. And the consequences of this refusal to pursue the Lord and worship him in a way that he has honored results in short life and minimal blessing. Here's the good news, though. That's the threat. God, it's a promise, not an empty threat. It's a promise, but a threat that has meaning to it. He, God says, if you, if you act corruptly, it's going to be the reversal of the blessings I've offered to give you. Here's the good news, though. Verses 29 to 31. In that land, if you realize the darkness of your heart and the depth of your sin, and you repent of what you have done, I'll bring you back. Praise God, the end of the story is never intended to be just judgment. There's always restoration that God wants to accomplish. And the end of the story today for Israel is not judgment in my mind. The future is bright for God's people in God's time in a millennium. All right, so observe God's command, the first eight verses, talking about the extent and result of that obedience. Second major point talks about the the dangers and the consequences of idolatry or worshiping God in a way that doesn't honor his name. And then the chapter ends with, again, where it started, observe God's commands, but this time it looks at the issue of motivation in verses 32 to 40. And this is kind of the climax of the chapter. So in verses 32 to 40, like he had done in verses 1 to 8, Moses again exhorts God's people, the nation, to live in light of God's expectations, not just as a set of rules to keep, Items to check off a list, but instructions whose obedience demonstrates God's character to the watching world. So, but unlike in verses 1 to 8, where he talked about the, the extent and result of that, here he focuses on the issue of motivation, why they should obey the Lord, how they can do that. And, and, and we're going to see here in these verses that in light of the Lord's many loving actions on their behalf, in light of who he is, unparalleled character, and what he does, intervening in their lives in so many ways, God's people should gladly affirm his absolute uniqueness and happily obey his commands to represent God's character before the watching world. That's what he wants to accomplish. He wants a nation that will live their life for his glory. Now, I'm going I'm to explain that in a moment, but that's not us today. We are not the nation of Israel. We don't replace the nation of Israel. And there's a lot of things to say there that I'm not going to pursue here. But I do want to make this point. Even though we are not the nation of Israel, it's interesting how in the New Testament we're called to the same mission. In 1 Peter 2.9, this is another message. 1 Peter 2.9, in that passage, Peter is asking the question, who are we? And his answer is, we are the people of God. And he says, to, the, to, to answer that question in a more full way, he says in verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, drawing on Exodus 19, 5 and 6, and Isaiah 48, the end of the chapter. 
And what's the purpose of that identity? That's who we are as part of the church as those who are believers. Chosen generation, holy nation, royal priesthood, people of his own possession. Why? For what? That you and I should show forth the praises, the moral excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous life, light. To make him big in the world. So even though we're not Israel as a nation, there are differences between us. And the Mosaic Covenant isn't what God requires us to obey today. We have the same mission, to make him big in the world, to glorify him. And all the expectations that are found in the New Testament and the, and the Old Testament that have, have, have value for us are not just items on a list. They're opportunities to conform our lives to his character in a way that shows the world the difference the gospel makes in our life, in a way that shows the world God's greatness and mercy and love, in a way that attracts people to the gospel to see countercultural, radical lives that demonstrate God's character to the watching world. So he, Moses here is telling God's people to obey his commands, but look at the, the motivation or how they can do that. And, and we have three things he does here. First of all, we have recollection in verses 32 to 34. In order to enhance Israel's appreciation for and understanding of her great God, Moses asks three specific rhetorical questions concerning God's activity in their behalf. And rhetorical questions generally expect a, a negative answer, a no. And here's the key point here of this recollection. Has anything like this ever happened before or anywhere else? Look at the scope of this challenge in verse 32, the first half. Indeed, ask about the earlier days that preceded you from the day God created man on the earth and from one end of heaven to the other. Has anything like this great event ever happened or anything like it been heard of? But look at the, the scope of this challenge chronologically about the earlier days that preceded you from the day God created man on the earth. Back to the beginning, back to the moment of creation, all of human history, go ahead and make that the object of your search, the extent of your search, all of human history to see if anything like this has happened before. And look at the, the, the geographic scope of the search from one end of heaven to the other, every part of God's creation. This is a research project of cosmic proportions. This is the biggest Google search ever. Has anything like this ever happened before? Moses is confident that the question he's about to pose will find no answer in human history, human knowledge. No, nothing like this has happened before is the point. Notice the content of the challenge in verse, verses 32 to 34. He first of all asks about something unparalleled broadly. At the end of verse 32, has anything like this in my translation, is this great event, but it's just this ever happened. Anything like it been heard of? You see, when Moses jumps right in here in verse 32, he talks about this. And you and I might wonder, what in the world is this? It's kind of undefined. As a prof who's grading a paper, sometimes this and they show up. And a, what's the antecedent? What does this point back to? It's kind of unclear. And it kind of happens here, just this. And it's not defined for us. I think Moses knew what it was. And I think everybody in his audience knew what Moses was referring to because they were, they'd lived through this history. Think about this with me to help us see what the this is. Where is Israel now at the time Moses speaks these words in Deuteronomy 4 geographically? They're camped on the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River. 
across the river from the promised land. And where had they been before, like 40 years before slaves in the land of Egypt? In the clutches of one of the most powerful empires in the world at that time. And how did they get from point A to point B? How did they get here to the brink of the promised land from being enslaved in the land of Egypt? What had brought about the change? The great God of the universe, God had entered into their existence, delivered them from the land of Egypt, and brought them to this land of, to the brink of the land of promise. Here's the this he's referring to here that's unparalleled. The fact that God is forming a nation for himself, a nation that is intended to lift up his name before the nations of the world. That's the unparalleled event. Moses' point here is not just saying that nothing greater than this has happened before, something almost like it, but just not as good. No, Moses' point is that nothing like it at all has ever happened before. What God is doing here is without precedent. So this first question is broadly asking about God's activity with regard to Israel. What he is doing for them and what he intends to accomplish through them is absolutely and totally unparalleled. And, and part of the point that Israel should have gleaned from that is what kind of a God does unparalleled things? An unparalleled God, an incomparable God. He is absolutely without parallel himself. And he does things that are without precedent. So that's the first question. Something unparalleled deals with something unparalleled in verse 32. Has anything like this happened before? No. Verse 33, he talks about impressive revelation. Has the people ever heard God's voice speaking from the fire as you haven't lived? And the answer again is no. But think about this. He says, has any person of any time in any place ever heard the voice of God and survived like this before? Now think about it. The point of this question by Moses is not whether or not someone had experienced this phenomena and lived, or then died, excuse me. That's not his primary point. No, the primary point is, has anybody received direct revelation from God before? Revelation with clarity. No one had heard their God speak in any fashion, let alone from a fire like happened with the burning bush to Moses. No other nation received direct revelation from their God. We're talking about clear propositional truth, like the Ten Commandments written in the hand of God, the finger of God, clearly laying out for his people how they should live. And then all the rest of the laws, giving his people a lofty calling, you know, there's a verse here in Psalm 147. I'll just read you verses 19 to 20. The psalmist declares, He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. These other nations don't know his laws. This is something God only did to the nation of Israel. Now you might think, well, big deal. Well, you know what? This is absolutely distinct and in contrast with what happened in the ancient Eastern world around them. You see, for the ancient Eastern worshiper, wherever they were outside of Israel, when they, they thought about their relationship to God, wasn't there, no relationship. Even when they thought about their duty to that God, they had no idea which God they defended when they did something wrong, because there are several of them with overlapping areas of turf. And what, what sin or what wrong had they done? I could read you a prayer from a Sumerian worshiper from 3000 BC, and he's just wandering around in the dark. He didn't have a clue what he's done wrong, but he's expecting to be smacked in the side of the head 
for what he had done because he's in the dark. How do I fix this problem if I don't know what I've done wrong? That's how life was in the ancient Eastern religious system. Now, I can tell you right now, I know in my life, humanly speaking, I like clear expectations. It's a bum deal to be in a situation where you don't know what is expected of you and you're crunched for not doing it. How many of us would vote for that? Well, none of us would. It's frustrating. It's hard. What God is doing by revealing his intentions to his people is not to make them miserable. He is giving them clarity in how they can live in a way that is God-glorifying. That is, if you will, countercultural, but it shows how big, how great, how majestic God is before the world. And Moses is saying, do you realize what a unique position you're in to have a God who not only is forming into a nation to live for his glory, and we're in a similar role as a church today, but he's also a God who has objectively, propositionally revealed his expectations that gives you the opportunity to live with confidence in a way that makes him big in the world. You don't have to wander around in the darkness. You don't have to wonder. God is not playing hide-and-seek with you. It isn't like you have questions about how I obey him and what he's expecting me to do. No, praise God. He has clearly revealed himself to his people. And then thirdly, in verse 34, we read about this awesome deliverance. Or has God ever attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation? Think back to God redeeming his people out of the land of Egypt. Or has God ever attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation by trial, signs, wonders, and war, by a strong hand and an outstretched arm, by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Has this ever happened before? Absolutely not. Now, on the one hand, as you read religious literature from the ancient Near East, there are mythic tales about God's interventions on behalf of their people. They're vague and indistinct. None of these epics can compare to God's act revealed to us in the book of Exodus and described here in Deuteronomy 4. None of them can compare to God's act of delivering a disorganized, dispirited, militarily experienced, inexperienced horde of slaves from the dominion of the mightiest power on earth. Boy, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? How did God do that? He's a God who does unparalleled things. And this is an absolutely unparalleled event. Has anything like this happened before, Moses is asking? And the answer is no, never. What God did in and through the events of the Exodus and in giving his law at Mount Sinai was absolutely unprecedented and unparalleled. God had not done any such thing anywhere else at any other time for any other people. Wow. That's an amazing God who did those great things on behalf of his people. And what should they learn from that? That's the recollection. Look at the reflection, verses 35 to 38, after reminding God's children of God's people of their God's awesome deeds on their behalf that were unparalleled, the what? He directs their attention to the reason behind the Lord's actions, the why. In verse 35 in particular, we come across the goal of the Lord's actions. Verse 35, he says, You were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God. 
and there is no other besides him. Moses gives the rationale behind these marvelous acts of God. What, he had, what God had done for Israel did not involve random or incidental acts without any intention. No, God had performed these great deeds for an important reason. The powerful point of verses 32 to 34 is not simply that God is one, a belief in monotheism as important as that is in a polytheistic world. No. Instead, Moses proclaims that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the exclusive one and only God, unparalleled God, incomparable God. And Moses points out that the Lord acted in Israel's behalf in this miraculous way so they could know by experience that the Lord is indeed God, in fact, the only true God. He is the only God for them. He is the exclusive God. These mighty acts in human history clearly demonstrated that God was absolutely unique. He was a God who was incomparable. There was no God like him. Now think about it. Moses is calling his people to, God's people to obey all of God's requirements. But he wants them to understand there's, there's a motivation for that. And the motivation comes from a clear understanding of the unparalleled God they serve, who does unparalleled things. And as they celebrate those unique actions and interventions of God in their lives, they should realize that the Lord, in fact, is God, and there is no other. He is the only God for them. The absolutely unique God is the only God for them. Now, what should that do? It should have compelled them to live lives, loyal lives, lives that made them big in the world. If we're convinced this is true, as Israel should have been convinced back then, if we're convinced that the Lord, in fact, is God, there is no other, he's the absolutely incomparable God who has done absolutely unexplainable things in our lives and around us, what should that compel us to do? How should we live? Well, we need to live lives to make an impact for eternity. We need to live lives that are not just much ado about nothing involved in activity, but not eternal significance. <coughs> That's the goal of what the Lord does here. To help Israel grasp, and they didn't do this as a nation, they'll do that eventually in the millennium, to have his people grasp his greatness in a way that transformed their hearts to motivate them to live in a way that shows the world what he's like. I'll continue here in a moment, but just think about how desperately you and I need that for our lives today. I'm a seminary prof. You might think I don't need it because I'm a seminary prof. Well, let me tell you, every year of my life cries out for this. You know, I'm not, it's not in me to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, I want you to understand that my wife is the sweetest woman in the world, the joy of my life, my treasure on earth, easiest woman to love. God just doesn't call me to love her. I can love her better than Bob or Bill or Joe. I can do that. But I'm called to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. For it. I'm toast. I'm doomed. Because it's not in me to do that by myself. So what do I need? I need to keep before me God's absolute greatness, his unparalleled character, 
And, and seeing who he is in absolutely undefinable ways, doing things on my behalf, should motivate me to seek to be who I can't be by myself. But by his strength I can do. Imperfectly, yes. But for his glory. And on the list could go. Being a shepherd of my kids, being a witness of the lost, being a teacher to my students that honors his name. We, we don't just fill our heads with information, Lord willing. We don't just seek to obey rules. We want to live out this relationship that we have with the great God of the universe in a way that shows the world what he's like. That was the goal of what the Lord had done here. Verse 35, you were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him, absolutely unparalleled, incomparable. He goes on in verses 36 to 38 and kind of circles back to remind God's people of his greatness and what he had done in their behalf. And let me just kind of summarize those verses by saying that in verse 36, he had personally communicated with them in tangible, objective ways. He let you hear his voice from heaven to instruct you. He showed his great fire on earth and you heard his words from the fire, both thinking about maybe the burning bush, but more importantly, his revelation of himself at Mount Sinai. So he'd revealed himself in tangible, objective, propositional ways, giving them clarity of how they could obey him. Praise the Lord. Verse 37, the first half, he chose Israel to be his people. Because he loved your fathers, you chose their descendants after them. He entered into this relationship with his people, took the initiative. What a blessing that is. And then he delivered them. Because he entered into this relationship with them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and great power. He, to drive before you, drive out before you the nations greater and stronger than you in the land of Canaan. So God is doing this and making history happen. Communicated with them, chose them, is going to deliver them both from Egypt and before the Canaanites. He indeed did great things on their behalf. They should recollect that. They should, they should not just understand what he did, but then think about it. Who he is, what he did, reflect on it. And motivate them to live lives of loyalty. And here's the exhortation. Here's the punchline. Here's kind of the climax. And the exhortation itself is found in verse 39 of the first part of 40. Based on all the marvelous things that the Lord had done for them already, God's children are exhorted to do two things. First of all, in verse 39, today recognize and keep in mind that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. The idea is, is internalize this truth. Acknowledge and take to heart this day. Don't just have it be out here or up here in your head. This thing should be vibrantly interwoven with our entire being. It affects the way I live. It affects the way I use my time. It affects my hungers and thirsts, my ambitions in life, my ultimate desire for accomplishment. It should all be defined by this. Acknowledge and take to heart this day. Recognize and keep in mind not just an external issue. Verse 30, 38, or 39, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. He is the universal sovereign. There's no area that's outside of his control. There's no turf he has no control over. And it also says in verse 39, there is no other. He is not only the, the, the universal sovereign, he's the only sovereign. The one and only God, the exclusive God for us. 
And then he says, obey his commands in verse 40. Keep his statutes and his commands, which I'm giving you today. And you understand the, the requirement of obedience in the context of this relationship. And the motivation to obey those commands, it isn't just we grunt and groan and try to crank it out. It, our hearts are set on fire by the greatness of our God. I can't do this here, but in uh, Deuteronomy 6 and 10, there's a great progression of thought in my mind. It's, I go upward, inward, outward. Not profound, but, and I can only introduce it here, upward, inward, outward. The point is, when we think about what God requires us to do, where do we normally start? We start with the outward. This is what I have to do. This is how I have to live. This is what my life should look like. And we crash and burn, because we're not up for it. Where should we start? Upward. We have a growing understanding of who God is and his greatness, his mercy and his grace. We're overwhelmed with what he's done in our life and the transformation he has accomplished in our hearts. Inward, that sets our hearts on fire, that motivates us to be who we can't be in ourselves. Then that shows up in what? The outward. Start with the upward. This God should light our hearts on fire to enable us to live in a way that makes him big. Obey his commands. And then he says some things that are interesting. I just want to make sure I clarify in the end of verse 40. What will be the result of this obedience in verse 40? So that you and your children after you may prosper, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Now, the idea is here that all future generations of God's people, if they obey, will experience his abundant blessings and live long in the land of promise and enjoy abundance and tangible blessing. And I want you to understand what the primary point of things going well for God's people for all time. Because this kind of sounds like health and wealth gospel. You got like cha-ching, cha-ching. You know, obey me and I fill your pockets. You have all the candy and ice cream you want to eat. Or whatever. You know, life is good. No problems. No warts, no pimples, no flat tires, no leaky roofs. Is God saying to Israel, if you do what I ask, I'll make your life very nice for all time. And much could be said here, but let me be brief, because this is misunderstood in that realm of the world where they preach that God is obligated to do things for you if you kind of do what he asks. On the one hand, I want to agree that under the Mosaic Covenant, which is what Deuteronomy 4 is in the context of, under the Mosaic Covenant, the nation of Israel was given a choice. And disobedience to God's requirements did result in the tangible eviction from the land of promise and the experience of covenant curse. Tangible, material impact. And the nation of Israel, in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, if they obeyed the Lord and lived out this loyalty, would enjoy long tenure in the land of promise, an abundance in that land that was God-given. Harvests would be abundant and flocks and herds would grow. That was true according to the Mosaic Covenant. But I want to make sure we understand that promise in the Mosaic Covenant against the larger theological backdrop. Was that the end of the story? Was that the ultimate goal that God had in mind for his people? I would say, no, this is the immediate goal. God said, obey me and you'll be blessed. Disobey me, you'll be cursed. That is how the Mosaic Covenant operated because in the Mosaic Covenant, where were God's people? They were in a turf and a land demarcated, set out by God to be the holy land. He gave them the land for a reason, not just to be able to sit back and be fanned and eat grapes, not just to have abundance. No, that was 
a means to an end. What was the ultimate goal? Well, we haven't looked at it here, but in Exodus 19, 4 and 6, he says, if you will hear my voice and obey my covenant, you'll be unto me a kingdom of priests, a special possession in a holy nation, not in that order. And the point is you'll be able to represent me before the watching world. I said that was the same calling we had as the church. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, people's own possession. Why? That you should show forth the moral excellencies, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want you to understand what he promises here that would be the result of their obedience is not the, mean, the ultimate goal, it's the means to an end. What does he have in mind here? He wants his people to obey him and enjoy land, enjoy life in the, in the promised land, in the covenant land, as a means of making them big in the world. So this land he's talking about, and these tangible blessings he's offering to give them, are not the ultimate goal in their lives. These, this, this provides them a platform on which they can live their lives for his glory, to make him big in the world. Now that doesn't happen very well in history, in Old Testament. That is going to happen in the millennium when the Lord reestablishes his people in the land and Jesus rules from Jerusalem. And they'll be able to, more effectively as a nation, live in a way that's unparalleled before the world at the time. Now what I want you to see here, in a similar way, that's what our lives involve too. We're not in the promised land. Real estate doesn't have the same significance. And so this idea of my obedience is going to create or occasion tangible material blessings is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is the same principle is this, that whatever we have, how much or how little we have is God's provision for us of a platform on which to live our lives for his glory. Whatever we have in this world is not meant to spend on ourselves alone. It's meant to be a tool, a platform on which to conduct our lives to direct the people around us' attention to the greatness of our God to make him big in the world, to live our lives for his glory. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses directs the attention of Israel and us to, the, to our great God and what he expects of his people. And again, his burden here in Deuteronomy 4 is not simply that his people would know what God expected, the requirements, but how they could live that life for his glory. He wanted his people to, to be transformed by their understanding of and appreciation of his uniqueness, his incomparability. And, and to me, it's, it's, here's a, a three-part sequence that Moses presents in Deuteronomy 4. He points to past divine action that shows, reveals God's character. And, and understanding past divine action leads to present theology, understanding who God is. We look at past divine action and we learn about who God is. But it doesn't end there. As much as I enjoy theology, past divine action that leads to present theology should always issue forth in world-impacting living, in practical living. And Lord willing, we'll revel in who God is and what God does. We'll think about those passages that celebrate his greatness and understand who God is, have good theology. But the end goal in mind is to make him big in the world to live out what we believe about this great God of the universe in a way that shows the world his greatness. So Lord willing, as we revel in his greatness and his power, may our lives be changed in the coming days. May our growing understanding of our incomparable God make us more able to demonstrate his glory to the watching world, to live eternally significant lives.
to make him big, to be a bright light in a desperately needy world. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day and for your word and the clarity of it. I thank you, Lord, that you are absolutely incomparable. There is no one like you. And because not only are you great, but you do great and unparalleled things, I do pray that you would help us as your people to celebrate those truths, to revel in them, to remind ourselves of your greatness and be motivated to be who we are not able to be in ourselves. To be those who make you big in the world. I pray that you would make us more able to be bright lights in a dark world. And Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as their Heavenly Father, they don't know the forgiveness of sins, they don't have the confidence of life in heaven after they die. I pray that they have the courage to speak with one of us about what it means to know Christ as Savior, to enjoy that forgiveness of sins, to know where they'll spend eternity, to embrace the gospel, repent of their sins and embrace the gospel and be transformed by your power, to be one of your children. In the end, Lord, help each of us to live lives that make a difference for eternity because we recognize you and live in light of you as the incomparable God. In Jesus' name.